It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The eyes of the crypto world turned to Washington, D.C. this week as Grayscale Investments faced off against the Securities and Exchange Commission with about $5.5 billion in unlocked value at stake and huge implications for the crypto industry. The drama centers on the $14.8 billion Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which has been trading at a steep discount to the cryptocurrency it holds. Grayscale wants to convert its Bitcoin Trust into an exchange-traded fund, but the SEC rejected the plan in June. The D.C. Federal Appeals Court judges grilled the SEC on its decision to reject the proposed spot Bitcoin ETF when it had earlier approved a similar product based on Bitcoin futures. Here's Chief Circuit Judge Sri Srinivasan and Judge Naomi Rao. What the commission really needs to explain is how it understands the relationship between Bitcoin futures and the spot price of Bitcoin. Because it seems to me that these things, I mean, you know, one is just essentially a derivative of the other. They move together 99.9% of the time. It's just going to follow like the night follows the day that it affects both. Because the futures market, of course it turns on the spot market. Joining me is securities law expert Robert Heim, a partner at Tartar, Krinsky & Drogan. Bob, tell us how we got to arguments at the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Well, this all started when Grayscale wanted to create an exchange-traded product for its Bitcoin trust. And the Bitcoin trust is priced and trades in actual Bitcoins, unlike some of the other exchange products that are currently on the market that concern futures contracts. And as a result, Grayscale and an exchange called ARCA applied to the SEC asking permission for Grayscale's Bitcoin trust to become an exchange-traded product and be available for retail investors. The SEC rejected that proposal in 2022, and Grayscale sued the SEC and filed a petition with the D.C. Circuit Court, arguing that the SEC's rejection of its request was an arbitrary and capricious decision, which should be overturned by the court. Why did the SEC reject Grayscale's application? The SEC's entire argument for why it rejected Grayscale's application is that Grayscale's product with Bitcoin, it trades in the spot market, which means essentially that Grayscale has a trust that actually owns Bitcoin, digital currency, and the current products that are on the market that are exchange-traded products, the underlying asset in those products are futures, Bitcoin futures contracts. And according to the SEC's reasoning, the SEC told the court that there's a 
big difference between those two types of structures because with futures contracts, those are regulated products. They're overseen by the CME. There's market surveillance, and there's all sorts of investor protections in place, whereas with the Bitcoin spot market, it's essentially an unregulated market. There's no regulator that oversees that. As a result, the SEC felt that there just wasn't enough safeguards in place for Grayscale's trust to warrant it being approved for retail trading. And how did Grayscale frame its arguments to the D.C. Circuit? What the court specifically is looking at is whether the SEC has articulated a reasonable position or not when it distinguishes between exchange-traded products that are based on futures versus exchange-traded products that are based on actual Bitcoin. And according to Grayscale, their arguments are is that there's really no meaningful distinction between the two and that any sort of concerns the SEC has about manipulation or fraud in the unregulated Bitcoin market you know, essentially also have to carry over to the futures market because those futures contracts are based on this unregulated market. So what Grayscale's argument to the court is, is that the SEC is drawing a distinction here that has no real substantive weight behind it. And the SEC obviously disagrees with that and is putting forward its reasons for why it thinks there's a difference between the two markets. In the oral arguments, the judges seem to be grilling the SEC's attorney more than Grayscale's attorney. The judges really seem to be picking up a lot of the points that Grayscale raised in their briefs, especially when it was the SEC's lawyers' turn to argue. The judges were really pressing the SEC to explain and justify the position that there is some sort of meaningful distinction between the Bitcoin futures market and the Bitcoin spot market. And from listening to the judges' questions and seeing how they responded to the arguments, it seemed like the judges were really not convinced by the SEC's arguments that there was a valid basis between distinguishing these different types of exchange-traded products. Tell us about the different ways the court could rule here. I think there's still a lot of uncertainty ahead for Grayscale because the court here can do a few different things. One, of course, it could agree with the SEC that there is some sort of reasonable basis for the arguments that the SEC is making. And, you know, the court's role is really not to sit and second-guess the SEC and to substitute its judgment for the SEC's judgment. The court's there really to ensure the SEC hasn't gone off the rails and has not presented any sort of reasonable argument for its position. If the court finds that there's even some reasonableness to the SEC's position, it could very well sustain the SEC's position and uphold the denial of the listing. You know, Grayscale's argument is that the SEC's position is just arbitrary and capricious, And their lawyer, Donald Borelli, who was the former Solicitor General of the United States, made the point in his argument that this is a very different case because Grayscale is actually asking for more regulation. They've applied to the SEC to become a regulated exchange-traded product, and they want that SEC regulation in order to offer and trade their shares because right now this is traded in the over-the-counter market, which is subject to a lot less regulation. So Grayscale is actually arguing that they want to come under SEC regulation for this product. And what's your best guess about how the court might rule here? You never really know in litigation how things are going to come out, even though some of the questions seem to be favorable to Grayscale. The court could still do a couple of things, um, even if it doesn't rule outright in favor of the SEC. It could rule in favor of Grayscale and just overturn the SEC's decision and allow the fund to begin trading, 
or kind of a middle ground approach is that the court could send it back to the SEC and say, you need to reconsider this because we don't find your reasoning persuasive. And I think that might be the most likely scenario, especially given the recent blow up of FTX and all the problems that have been occurring in the crypto market. I think the judges are going to be reluctant to just replace the SEC's judgment with their own and say that this exchange fund can now begin trading, you know, which is based on Bitcoin. There may be a lot of reluctance on the judge's part to do that. And it may be more comfortable for them to send it back to the SEC with more guidance and have the SEC take a second look at this. Do you think that a spot Bitcoin ETF protects investors better, as Verrilli argued? Well, I think that the SEC's arguments were fairly weak. While their concerns about fraud and manipulation are well justified in the Bitcoin market, the SEC specifically mentioned things like wash trading, insider trading, hacking. You know, those are all very legitimate concerns that need to be addressed. But the SEC really, in my opinion, didn't do a very good job of explaining why those same risks are less when you have a futures product based on Bitcoin. And it seems to the judges and to me that there really are the same risks. And the interesting thing about the Grayscale case, too, is that there's been a number of amici that have filed friend of the court brief. And in some of those briefs, there were some pretty compelling arguments made about all the steps that the exchanges and other service providers take to try to address those sort of fraudulent and manipulative practices in the Bitcoin spot market. Grayscale has said that if it loses, it will appeal to the Supreme Court, and that if it loses, it may try a tender offer. Do you think the Supreme Court would take this case? Well, this case has more going for it than the average case. It, it is a very important case to um, to the crypto industry, as is evidenced from the fact that so many amicus briefs were filed. And Bitcoin is the largest digital currency by far. Its market cap is $400 billion. The Grayscale Trust itself has $12 billion of Bitcoin. So this is clearly a case that has national implications and importance for a developing industry. And as of the last few years, the Supreme Court has also shown an, an interest in taking cases where the SEC has been a respondent because there there are a number of cases that have come out over the last five years where the SEC has lost at the Supreme Court because the court viewed the commission as either overstepping its boundaries or acting in an arbitrary and capricious manner. So I do think that this case has more than an average case's chance of success in being taken up by the Supreme Court, but still it's a very small percentage of cases are taken by the Supreme Court. Yes, smaller and smaller every year, mm-hmm. it seems. So, And what about Grayscale trying a tender offer? You know, I think that's going to be an interesting option. You know, it, it's clearly Plan Z. <laughs> I think for Grayscale, it's not an ideal solution because it's going to be quite a bit more costly. It's a different regulatory path that's involved. And I, I think that Grayscale would much prefer to have this product traded in the market, and it would also allow it to, to grow and to, to really set the standard. The, the tender offer may be something that uh, that they would look at. I don't think they've really fleshed out the idea very much in terms of pricing and valuation and how that would work with the discount to the market, whether the, the tender offer would be made at some premium or whether it would be the full discount. So I think there's a lot of open questions on the tender offer plan still. Has the SEC been cracking down on digital asset products in general? 
Yes, I would say so. Ever since the the new chair came in, Gary Gensler, he's been very aggressive in terms of tackling the cryptocurrency issues and digital asset issues. There's been a number of enforcement cases under his tenure against digital asset companies. I would say it's a a real effort on the SEC's part to expand their turf and to bring these digital assets under the umbrella of securities regulation and everything that goes with it in terms of disclosures and regulation of trading platforms and all of the surveillance and so forth. So, yes, and that emphasis only got stronger uh, in the wake of the FTX collapse and uh, really brought that to the top of the SEC's agenda in terms of regulating digital assets and cryptocurrencies. So the SEC has rejected several applications for ETFs uh, similar to this. If the court rules against the SEC here, will it have to reconsider those applications? Not necessarily, because this uh, case is going to be limited just to grayscale. But if the SEC loses, those other funds certainly may want to uh, reapply to the SEC and and get the benefit of any sort of favorable decision on that. And it's an interesting point the SEC is making because Grayscale's, almost their entire argument is that the SEC is treating their Bitcoin fund differently than the exchange-traded products that were approved, even though essentially in, in Grayscale's view, they're economically very, very similar. And the SEC notes that, well, you know, in their view, that's not the case. The SEC says that they've been very consistent in terms of rejecting exchange-traded products that were based on Bitcoin spot prices, just like here. So the SEC is arguing to the court the relevant comparison is not looking at futures-based funds to spot-based funds, but the relevant consideration is how did the SEC treat other spot funds? And they've, they've rejected those applications, too. So in in the SEC's view, they are being consistent in the way they're treating Grayscale because they've rejected Grayscale just like they've rejected other spot ETF types of funds for Bitcoin. A lot of people interested in this decision. Thanks so much, Bob. That's Robert Heim of Tartar, Krinsky & Drogan. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Special counsel Jack Smith is moving aggressively in his investigation, subpoenaing former Vice President Mike Pence, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, and several of Trump's attorneys to testify before the grand jury. Multiple news outlets are reporting that the special counsel is asking a judge to bypass the attorney-client privilege claims made by Trump's attorney Evan Corcoran due to the crime fraud exception. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at McCarter in English. Trump's attorney, Evan Corcoran, had raised attorney-client privilege claims. But the special counsel is asking the judge to bypass those claims of attorney-client privilege by invoking the crime fraud exception. Explain what the crime fraud exception is. The attorney-client privilege is a broad privilege that protects all communications between a client and an attorney 
whether it's information that the client is giving to the attorney in order to seek legal advice or advice that the attorney is giving to the client. But there is one exception to that that is often used by prosecutors, and that's something called the crime fraud exception. What that means is that there's an exception where there's reason to believe that the legal advice that the attorney is giving is being used in furtherance of a crime. So in other words, if a client comes in and talks about something they did in the past, that would all be covered by the privilege, even though the prior conduct may constitute a crime. What you cannot do is cloak your conversations with your attorney going forward if you're talking about a prospective crime. So if you're asking for advice from an attorney about conduct that may in and of itself be criminal and has not yet occurred, that is something that does not fall within the attorney-client privilege, but it's something called the crime-fraud exception. What does it tell you that the special counsel is invoking that here? Does it tell you just that they suspect that a crime was committed or that they suspect the lawyer was involved in the crime? Well, in this case, Mr. Corcoran was among at least three lawyers for former President Trump who appeared before a grand jury in January as part of the investigation into classified documents discovered at former President Trump Mar-a-Lago's residence in Florida. And during the course of that investigation, Mr. Corkin emerged as a figure of interest because federal investigators spoke to him about the fact that he handled Mr. Trump's responses to government's request to return those records that the government said belonged to the presidency and did not belong to Mr. Trump personally. And in fact, there came a point in time where there was a statement that was signed by another attorney, not by Mr. Corcoran, where that attorney vouched for the fact that they had done a diligent search of Miralago and did not believe that there were any classified documents located at the former president's residence. Following that, we all know the federal government came in, the FBI came in and did a search of Mar-a-Lago and found additional classified documents. And so likely what they want to talk to Mr. Corcoran about is what he did in terms of looking for those documents and whether or not his conversations with former President Trump in any way facilitated an obstruction of justice crime going forward. Do prosecutors often invoke the crime fraud exception or is it unusual? The crime fraud exception is not something that comes up all the time because judges are generally pretty wary of piercing the attorney-client privilege. It is such a bedrock concept in our protections and our civil rights in the way that individuals are able to talk to their attorneys and they have to be able to believe that all the conversations with their attorneys are protected in order to get fair legal advice. You can't be in a situation where a client is fearful that the information that he's giving, he or she is giving to his attorney will somehow be made public. On the other hand, where it's clear, and organized crime cases are one example that I prosecuted, and we did see this come up time and again, is where an outside counsel can be used not to give advice to a client about some prior conduct, a defense against a potential criminal charge that could be brought down the road. But lawyers have been used in order to help guide organized crime figures and other criminals in terms of perpetrating crimes in the future. And that's where you see a piercing of the attorney-client privilege based upon the crime fraud exception. So while it's unusual, it's certainly not unheard of. Since Jack Smith was appointed special counsel, does it seem as if his department is moving aggressively? They're subpoenaing 
former Vice President Mike Pence and former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. And here you have they're trying to get more information out of the lawyers. I wouldn't call it aggressive, but I would call it mindful of the fact that the presidential election is approaching, the presidential primaries are approaching, and there's a general rule in the Department of Justice that you do not want to return indictments so close in time to an election that they could in some way impact that election. So while on the one hand, as a prosecutor, and someone who's going to be careful and thorough, you want to make sure you're dotting all your I's, you're crossing your T's, you want to take your time and build your case to make sure if you do seek an indictment from the grand jury, that it's a strong one. And ultimately, you're going to be able to convict when you get to trial. On the other hand, in a sense, the special prosecutor is racing against the political clock because clearly he does not want to be in a position where he's returning an indictment close in time to the primaries or close in time to the presidential election, such that there can be an argument that could be made that is in some way political interference with the outcome of the election. As far as the subpoena of Mike Pence, let's talk first about what former President Trump is trying to do to block that subpoena, or at least to block specific issues he claims were covered by executive privilege. Former President Trump has repeatedly invoked the legal protection of executive privilege to try to block the testimony of his allies from subpoenas related to the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. In this case, he has sought to block the testimony of former President Mike Pence on the basis that that is also covered by executive privilege. Executive privilege is a legal protection for the President of the United States that allows them to shield some of their private communications from Congress and the courts. And basically, at its core, it is designed to allow presidential advisors to give candid advice free from fear of public disclosure to allow presidents to deliberate productively, to have all the information they may need in order to make a decision without the fear that those discussions would someday become public. In this case, there's a question about whether the former president has a right to invoke executive privilege, and that's something that has been tested by the courts. And in most instances, the courts have ruled against former President Trump. In addition, executive privilege is clearly not something that is absolute. And generally, the courts have held that if the information that is being sought is in connection with a criminal investigation, that overrides executive privilege. Is it more for the current president than a prior president? The question of whether a former president can invoke executive privilege is still somewhat unsettled. President Nixon tried to invoke executive privilege after he left office when prosecutors were seeking tapes in connection uh, with the Watergate break-in. And in that case, we know Nixon lost the case. He had to turn over the tapes. But the court was never entirely clear on the question of whether a former president could exercise executive privilege or not. So far, in the cases that have been tested by former President Trump, he has not prevailed. In most cases, the courts have relied on the fact that the information that was sought was done in connection with a criminal investigation, and that is something that the Supreme Court has always acknowledged will outweigh the protection of executive privilege. Mike Pence himself is not using an executive privilege argument. He's using the speech and debate clause. I think it's the first time it's been used by a vice president in these kinds of circumstances. Explain what that's about. 
speech or debate clause is designed as a safeguard against politically motivated civil litigation or criminal prosecutions that can kill congressional debate or arguably intimidate legislators. In this case, former Vice President Pence is calling the subpoena by the special counsel unconstitutional, arguing that the executive branch cannot summon officials in the legislative branch into court or in any other place. The facts here are that as Vice President, Vice President Pence was a member of the executive branch during the Trump administration, but also held a unique role, as all vice presidents do, as also acting as president of the Senate, and he does preside over the joint session of Congress, in this case, the one that certified the 2020 electoral vote count. The vice president also acts in a legislative capacity by breaking ties in the Senate. So the argument in support of his contention that the special counsel is not entitled to subpoena him in connection with his role in certifying the 2020 election is that he was acting in a legislative capacity rather than an executive capacity when he was deciding whether or not he would certify those election results. Lindsey Graham used this to try to block a subpoena in Georgia. The subpoena was not blocked, but the judge said he could raise objections during the testimony to specific things. Is that a ruling that Mike Pence might face? Sure. I mean, this question of whether or not the vice president draws the same speech or debate protections as members of Congress is largely unsettled. It's a murky area where, frankly, there is no clear outcome. On the other hand, I think it's clear that it will not act as a blanket or wholesale protection against Vice President Pence from having to appear before the grand jury and answer any questions at all. As you point out, when Lindsey Graham tried to raise the question of speech or debate clause, which frankly is arguably a stronger argument than the one being raised by Vice President Pence, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals said that he had to appear in front of that grand jury. They compelled him to testify, and they said so long as investigators steer their questions away from anything involving his legislative responsibilities, they were entitled to make him appear before the grand jury and answer questions. I think in this case, at the end of the day, Vice President Pence will also be required to answer questions about some of the activities. Exactly the scope of the speech or debate clause protection is unclear, but it will likely not act as a blanket protection that will bar the special prosecutor from asking him any questions whatsoever in connection with the certification of the 2020 election. Thanks, Bob. That's Robert Mintz of McCarter and English. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.